thus far in my life, I've had the privilege of officiating several weddings. I imagine most of you haven't done that, but uh, when it comes time to officiate a wedding, the first time I was asked is when I was still in seminary. Um, and so since I was still working on getting my degree and I wasn't licensed or ordained or anything as a minister, um, I had to figure out, can I actually officiate a wedding? Because at some point in the service, you say, by the power vested in me as a minister of the gospel and by the state, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Um, but if I actually don't have the authority to pronounce somebody husband and wife, those words are really meaningless. It's just, they're kind of just said and it's like, well, you know, that's not actually true. He just said it because he doesn't have the authority to do that. And at the same in another scenario, I'm also a chaplain with the police department, and even though I'm riding with a police officer very often, and we get out and respond to calls and talk to people, um, I can't walk up to somebody and be like, hey, stop doing that, or I'm going to place you under arrest. And they're going to be like, uh, who are you? Uh, are you a police officer? You can't place me under arrest. You don't have authority to do that. And maybe some of you have want, seen people doing things wrong. I always see, now I'm really like, keyed in on the cell phone thing because they're very, you know, really cracking down on that. So I pe see people on their cell phone, I'm like, hey, and I want to like pull them over and arrest them, but they're not going to pull over, you know, because my Prius is behind them and I'm like honk honking at them. They're going to be like, what? who is this guy? Like, he doesn't have the authority to bother me and arrest me, but maybe you've seen people doing things wrong and you're like, man, I really wish I could arrest them or do something and, or, or take them to jail or something like that. But the, the principle here is it's, it's because... It's because what someone is able to do is determined by who they are. Um, because uh, this, I'm recognized as a minister of the gospel, I can have the authority to pronounce somebody husband and wife. Or it's because a police officer has been sworn in and they have this uniform and this badge that they now have the authority to do something. It's because of who they are that they're able to do a certain thing. And this evening, as we continue exploring God, we're tapping this question, is Jesus really God? And if you've grown up in church... This can be like one of those questions where you know what you're supposed to say when somebody asks that, but maybe you don't really know why you're supposed to say it. And we maybe even could say like, well, I know why I would say Jesus is God. I know the verses I would point to or, or whatever it is. But we don't know, well, why is it important? Maybe we know why we say it, uh, why, because it's this verse and this verse and that verse. But we don't really know why it's important. Why does it matter? What's at stake if Jesus wasn't really God and if he was just a guy um, doing all the things he did. Last week, we, I shared a quote by Christian author C.S. Lewis, and he has another great quote that gets at the heart of tonight's question, and because any, almost anybody who knows about Jesus likes Jesus, or has some sort of respect for him. There's few, very few people who, if you say, like, hey, what do you think of Jesus? They're like, yeah, that guy was just a dirtbag. Most people are like, yeah, Jesus, like, he was a good guy, and maybe they're impressed, like, he had some sort of, kind of you know, some spiritual... Uh, enlightened person, and it's like, yeah, he, he's a really spiritual person, or maybe like he was a really good guy, did really good things, or maybe they'll say he was just a really great moral teacher. Um, few people will say, yeah, Jesus, that guy was, you know, he was just a jerk. Most people admire him in some form, but but C.S. Lewis didn't think any of these options I just said, you know, we like him because he's spiritually enlightened, or a good guy, or a good teacher. He said none of those is a good option when it comes to Jesus, and so here's what he says. Because I'm trying to here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept this claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
And then Lewis gives these three options. He says he can either be a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. And Jesus, if you read through the New Testament, if the New Testament's an accurate picture of Jesus, Jesus said some crazy stuff. Like he made himself equal with God. And he said, I want to be the savior of all humanity. And so either this guy's a liar, and he's knowingly lying and knowingly deceiving people, or he's a lunatic who's not right in his head. And that's why he's saying this stuff. I mean, you guys, it would take quite a bit for me to convince you, hey, guess what? I'm God. Um, equal authority with God, and I'm going to die uh, a couple years and save you all from your sins. You'd all be like, okay, I'm never coming here again. Like, you're going to think I'm either knowingly lying to you or I'm a lunatic. Something's not right in my head. And if he's not a liar or lunatic, or if he is a liar or a lunatic and he's not really God, then he shouldn't be considered a great moral teacher or a great person because he's led millions of people to base their lives on the lies of a liar or the ravings of a madman. And so how could you call somebody, if all of us are following him, giving our lives to him and um, doing all the things we do in his name, um, how is that a good person who's either a liar or a lunatic? They're not a good teacher or a good person. But if he wasn't a liar or a lunatic and was telling the truth, then the only option left is that he is Lord of all and we should fall at, our feet, at his feet and worship him. But today people had a fourth option. They say, well, no, he wasn't a liar or a lunatic, uh, but he was a legend. He's not Lord, he's a legend. And they claim, well, he didn't, either he never existed, he's just kind of this legend that came up, up out of, I don't know, people's imagination or some thing getting out of hand, or the original Jesus didn't make all these crazy claims. He didn't say, I'm equal with God. He didn't say, I'm the savior of the world. He didn't do all the miracles and stuff. See that? He was just this ordinary guy. Maybe he was a really good teacher, and he was kind of an extraordinary guy, too. But all that stuff that we read in the Bible, that's become the stuff of legend. It all got exaggerated and embellished and told over and over again until he became this Jesus that now we all worship as a God. So some people say that. Um, and actually, next week, um, when we talk about is the Bible um, reliable, we'll get into that. Like, is what we have in the Bible just the stuff? You know, people got really excited about this ordinary guy who was a good teacher. And they made him into God. So we'll talk about that next week. And in line with our C.S. Lewis quote from last week, if Jesus was a liar, lunatic, or legend, he is of little or no importance to us. Maybe we can learn some things from him, but he's just really a guy like all of us. And we can take some stuff, leave some stuff. He's imperfect. Uh, he might be inspiring at some points, but he's not uh, inspiring on in all of them. He isn't somebody we should devote our lives to. But... If he is Lord, if he is who the Bible claims he is, then he, we must give him nothing short of our undivided uh, loyalty and commitment and worship. But what he cannot be is moderately important to us. If he is who he said he is, we can't just be medium about him. It's like all in or we have to just reject who he is. And so as you consider this question about whether Jesus is really God, we're going to consider it from the stance of authority. What someone is able to do is determined by who they are. Like we said, I can pronounce somebody husband and wife because minister of the gospel. A police officer can arrest somebody because they're a police officer, but the rest of us can't do that. And there are many things that Jesus did, um, which are things that only God can do, actions that only God can do. And so we could go to a bunch of passages. Here's, where, here's this passage where Jesus is taking a title of God of, that only applies to God. Here's this passage where Jesus is doing something only God can do. Um, but we're going to focus on one element that's at the center of the gospel, the center of the Christian message, and it's forgiveness. Jesus gave forgiveness 
to people, not just like on a human level, but he pronounced God's forgiveness on people. And this is one of the most beautiful parts of the Christian message and at the center of it. And when Jesus' disciples in the book of Acts start telling people about Jesus, they're saying, he died for the forgiveness of your sins. And that was like the central part of all of it. And it's when we understand that that we're able to see that Jesus really was God. So here's our big idea for this evening. God forgives us by taking our place. If you like writing things down, it's our big idea. God forgives us by taking our place. God forgives us by taking our place. And we're going to look at two passages of Scripture for this evening. And the first is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, that we already read. So it's on page 837 if you want to flip there. And our big idea, God forgives us by taking our place. The first place we're going to look is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, page 837 in the Bibles that we use here um, that are sitting on the back table. And in Mark chapter 2, so we saw Jesus is teaching this group of people in a house, and it's quite crowded. And these group of guys want their friend to get healed. He's paralyzed, and so they want to get him close to Jesus. Jesus has made a name for himself, healing people. Like, we want to get him close to this guy. But the crowd, how, house is too crowded. They can't get him in. So they start removing the tiles on the roof, and they lower him down uh, for him to get healed. And their desire is for healing, but they get more than they bargained for. So start at verse 5 in Mark chapter 2. <clears throat> It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're exactly right. God alone can forgive sins against him. In order to understand this scene, we need to look at the flow of the entire story of the Bible. And the Bible is... If you wanted to sum it up in one way, you could say the whole Bible is about God trying to restore the broken relationship between him and humanity. At the beginning, he created us to be in a relationship with him that gets broken in chapter 3. And then the whole rest of the whole Bible is about God trying to restore that relationship, working to bring restoration between us and him. How do you repair a broken relationship? A broken relationship, as we saw in our first scripture reading, The word is reconciliation. Two people need to be reconciled, and reconciliation happens through forgiveness. In our relationship with God, the the only one who needs forgiveness is us. God doesn't need forgiveness. He hasn't wronged us. We've wronged him because we said, you know, I want to run life my own way. Uh, I don't want to do what you have to say. I want to do the things that I want to do. I want to fulfill my desires and not yours. And so we're the ones that have broken this relationship, and that... uh, wanting to live without him and do things our own way. That's what the Bible calls sin. And if you want forgiveness of your sins against God, you need to get it from God, and you need to do it his way. Forgiveness has to come from the person who has been wronged. I can't grant uh, Brian forgiveness for hurting Laurel. If Brian comes to me and he's like, hey, I hurt Laurel, can you give me forgiveness? No, I can't. You have to ask her for forgiveness. So you can only get forgiveness from the person um, whom you have wronged. And it can only be granted by the offended party. But Jesus came, uh, before Jesus came, God made it clear the cost of sin is death and condemnation and exile and separation from him and curse. And he made it clear to the first humans, Adam and Eve, that if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And he made it clear throughout the whole rest of the Bible, if you sin, this is what's going to happen. Separation, condemnation, death, curse, exile. And God has made it equally clear that if we don't want to die, if we don't want to be condemned, if we don't want to be cursed, if we don't want to be separated from him, we need forgiveness. 
We need forgiveness for the sins we've committed, the wrongs we have done, and the wrongs and the good that we have left undone. But forgiveness always comes at a cost. And if you look in the Old Testament, this is where the sacrificial system comes into play. And that might have been a part of the Bible you've read before and be like, what is up with all these animals getting killed and sacrificed? This is very odd. But it had um, a, a huge uh, teaching lesson for the people of Israel, God's people. Um, it taught them forgiveness requires sacrifice. Because every time they would, when they sinned, they would have to come to the temple where God's presence was. They'd have to bring an animal to the priest that was spotless, without blemish, and which symbolized innocence and having done nothing wrong. And they'd bring it to the priest, and they put their hand on its head. And that was symbolizing of this animal is taking upon itself my guilt, my sin, what I deserve, and then the animal will be killed. And so it took on my sin, my guilt, and now it got the consequence I deserve for those things. And it would die in their place. The one who committed the wrong deserved the death, but God accepted the animal's death in their place. And the message was clear. The cost of sin is death. If you want to live instead of die, you need forgiveness. And forgiveness requires that something else dies in your place. And only God can grant forgiveness. And forgiveness requires sacrifice. And so if we want forgiveness from God... In Jesus' day, you needed to go to the temple, you needed to bring your sacrifice, and you needed to talk to the priest. But now, here's this guy, Jesus, who isn't a priest, who isn't in the temple, and he was telling this guy who didn't bring a sacrifice that he is forgiven. And so he's outside of all the normal things. And by the way, it's not just that these guys are like, you know, hey man, like, loosen up, Jesus. Like, let or, it's not like we should say to them, loosen up, guys. Let Jesus forgive people. He wants to forgive people. It's like, no, God's the one who told us how this forgiveness thing works. And now Jesus is the one stepping outside of that. And so they're right to be like, uh, who can, only God can forgive sins. What are you doing? You can't be just telling people they're forgiven of their sins. And Jesus notices he has ruffled some feathers. And so he responds in verse 8 of Mark chapter 2. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they're all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And Jesus recognizes that, well, of course, it's pretty easy for me to say your sins are forgiven. Um, but what really, what, what is their proof? What proof is there that his sins really are forgiven? Like, I can say that to any of you, and it's, you know, I can say, any, we can say anything to anybody, but it doesn't prove that it's actually a reality, and so he's like, "Okay, I get it. Um, you're questioning whether I can really forgive sins because I'm doing it totally separate from the, the system God has set up." And so he's like, "Here's the proof I'm going to offer that I have authority to do this. I'm going to heal this guy. Um, your sins are forgiven." It sounds like the words of a liar, or a lunatic. Um, what would prove that I actually have authority to do this? That I'm Lord. I'm going to heal this guy of his paralysis, and so he heals him, and all the people are amazed. And the title Jesus uses for himself is. Son of Man, which is a figure from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, and it's this figure, the Son of Man is a figure who is a, is a human being who shares God's divine authority. Son of Man is a human being who shares God's divine authority. And Jesus is saying, 
You know, so you can see that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And he's saying, I'm that human being who shares God's divine authority. Only God can grant forgiveness. And Jesus claims to be God by granting it. But it always comes, as we said, with a sacrifice. Always is a sacrifice. It requires that someone pay for this sin. It always comes at a cost. Not to the one receiving forgiveness, but the one giving the forgiveness. Forgiveness is free to the receiver, but it costs the one giving it. In the Old Testament sacrifices, the one needing forgiveness brings an animal from their own herd. So you could say, okay, well, it seems like it's kind of costing them because they're losing the animal. But really, who's paying the most in this situation when somebody brings an animal to be sacrificed? The animal's paying the most because the animal's paying with its life. The animal is losing its life. And for what? Nothing that it did. It's dying because this person is the one who actually did the wrong. And the person should be the one dying. The person should be the one bearing the penalty. The person should bear the consequences of their sin. But they walk away with none of it. They walk away totally free of all the consequences. Another completely absorbs the penalty in their place. And of course, animals can't pay for a person's sin. You know, if you went to a judge uh, and you're like, you had a traffic ticket, and you're like, well, I brought this goat, um, so I'm willing to kill that in front of you, uh, and you know, we're good here. Uh, no, animals can't pay for a person's sin. There's nothing magical about animal sacrifices. Uh, when someone grants you forgiveness, they're the ones paying for your sin. They're the one making the sacrifice. Forgiveness is the person who's been wronged paying the debt of the one who wronged them. And it's completely undeserved. They have wronged you. They have hurt you. They have done something. They should make it up to you and pay you back for it. They have (coughs) sinned against you. And forgiveness releases them from this obligation instead of requiring that they do it. And instead, you absorb the consequences for their action, the pain, the hurt, whatever it costs you. And you don't hold it against them. You pay for the wrong that they did to you. That's forgiveness. And throughout the whole Bible, God said, the cost of sin is death and exile and condemnation and separation from me. And Jesus comes and says, well, I'm giving my life to free all of you from that. And he said in Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus claims to be paying for our sins. He claims to not, he's not only offering forgiveness, He's also paying for the forgiveness. And every time you offer forgiveness to somebody, you're paying for that forgiveness. You're saying, you're not going to have to make it up to me. I'm just taking this upon myself. You've hit me. Whatever it is, you've hit me with this cost, with this pain, this hurt, this loss. I'm just going to absorb the damages and release you from it. And so only the person offended can offer forgiveness and only they can pay for it. And our big idea is this, that God forgives us by taking our place. Forgiveness can only be offered by the one who's wronged, and forgiveness can only be paid by the one who's been wronged. Jesus can't offer forgiveness or pay for forgiveness if he isn't God. Because if he's not God, then he's not the one who's been wronged. But it's because he is God in the flesh that he has the authority to forgive our sins and to pay for our sins. And the reason Jesus, the Son of God, who is fully God, the reason that God had to become human in the person of Jesus is because God in himself can't die. So God had to become a human so he could die the death that we deserve. God as he is um, can't die and so he can't die the death that we deserve for our sins. So God becomes human in order to die the death that we deserve. He became man to pay the cost of forgiveness, to pay the debt we owe 
from his own pocket. And God forgives us by taking our place. God forgives us by serving our sentence. God forgives us by assuming our debt. God forgives us by absorbing what we deserve. God forgives us by dying our death. And it's only when we understand this that we can begin to grasp the amazing love of God that we hear about in the gospel. God didn't say, well, these people need forgiving, and that means someone needs to die in their place. I'll send Jesus, this other you know, person or thing or creature over here. I'll send Jesus. Or I'll send Jesus was an angel or Jesus was just some really good person. All of, none of those is God dying in our place. None of those is God absorbing the cost of our sin or paying it himself. It's somebody else paying it. And so there's only, when you think about the, the, the cross and forgiveness and um, salvation, it's not um, God, Jesus, and us. It's just God and us. And our God is a three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so that's why the Father can continue to be in control of the universe while he sends the Son um, to be... Uh, to become flesh and become a human. And it's not God, oh, and then God sends Jesus and puts our punishment on Jesus. No, it's just this is the relationship that needs to be broken, God and us. And the only way it can be unbroken, the only way it can be fixed, is if God himself takes upon himself uh, the damages that we've done to it. And God fulfills the demands of his own justice. So God says, not, oh, I'll send Jesus you know, to die in their place. No, God comes, becomes flesh, and he says, I, these people need forgiving you. I will die in their place. I'm going to forgive them. I have to bear their penalty. I have to pay the cost of sin. I have to absorb the consequence. And that's what you do every time you forgive something from somebody. It's amazing that God forgives us by taking our place. And as I was wrote that sentence, I kept thinking like, and for me, I kept praying and thinking and reflecting of a sentence that could capture the full weight of what we're actually talking about here, about God himself taking upon the damage we've done to the relationship. And I realized, well, uh, this is why Jesus told stories to illustrate it. And so one famous story, uh, you've probably heard of it, the prodigal son. Um, and so you can, if you want to turn there, you can turn to Luke chapter 15, mm-hmm. verses 11 through 32 on page 874 of the Black Bibles we're using here. So it's Luke chapter 15. Verses 11 through 32. And we're going to look at this story just briefly so we can feel the weight and the significance of what God has done. That's why Jesus tells this story. So Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. We'll read 11 through 19, pause, um, and do a little bit of interaction. So it says this, Luke 15, 11. And he said, there is a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Here is a son who has wronged his father, and he asks for his inheritance early, 
know, Dad, could you please give me the trust fund early or give me, you know, the share of the property early, give me the money from the bank early that I've that you saved up hard and long for me to carry on our family's estate and legacy and, and name and all this stuff. He said, could you give it to me early? And maybe the father asked some more questions. Well, what are you going to do with it? Or maybe just gave it to him. And then the son moves out of the house and he goes and blows it all on reckless living to the point that he has to beg for his own food. And he's looking at the pigs and what they're eating in their trough. And he's like, man, I, that is what, I just need something to eat. And that's looking pretty good right now. And then he realizes, well, geez, the, the hired servants in my dad's house have it better than I have right now. I'm going to go back. And he prepares this little speech. I'm going to beg my dad, uh, you know, please, I'm not even worthy to be called a son. Just let me be a hired servant. And at least I'll have a meal and maybe a place to stay and all that. He did, and he says these words, I deserve to be treated as a higher servant rather than a son. And so let's put ourselves in the son's shoes. He's on our, he's got this little speech prepared. He makes this realization. He's deeply wronged his father. And I'm sure a lot of you know this story. Um, whether you know it or not, um, let's just put ourselves in his shoes. What would he expect from his father when he gets back home? Oh, put it up on the board here. What was that? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Well, what would you, if there was no grace or no forgiveness, and we just imagine like a dad, uh, like his son just blew everything, all the money, what would you be expecting? And what would you be feeling if you weren't a, a good, you know, godly person? <laughs> Judgment or condemnation. Judgment <laughs> or condemnation. I told you so. I told you so, yeah. Maybe you gave him a little speech. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Judgment. More, more. Condemnation. Did I hear guilty? Of course, all these are really long words. What was the. Did I miss? Punishment. Punishment. Who said things that I missed? I told you so. I think somebody said rejection, too. Oh, that's nice. Or told. Told you so. Rejection. We'll just leave it at that. That's a good list. <coughs> that seems about right. Might be what I was would be tempted to, to do. Um, but let's continue in verse 20. It says, And he arose, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the father isn't sitting on the porch his arms crossed, and he sees the sun coming. You know, this ought to be good. You know, can't you imagine him just being like, wow, there he is. I, I, can you believe the nerve that he would actually show his face back here? This ought to be good. What explanation does he have? But seeing his son returning to him, compassion wells up in him, and he runs out to meet him, wraps his arms around him, and just showers him with all this affection. And the, and the son gets his prepared speech out in verse 21. I don't know what you're going to say. You know, you know, just wait a second, Dad. I, got, you know, I have something to say. The son said to him, verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his father doesn't even respond to that. Doesn't even like, acknowledge that he says it. Verse 22 says, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found, and began to celebrate. 
And he's so excited that his son is home. He, he's come back. I lost him. He was dead, and now he's come back to me. And he doesn't even care about all the stuff that his son did. And he just showers over him with all this love and affection. He doesn't rub his nose in it. He doesn't condemn him. doesn't shame him. He doesn't do the things we might be tempted to do. And he doesn't even do what the son asks. He's like, Father, you know, how many of us feel like that towards God? You know, Father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Please just, you know, servant is good enough. A servant's a dignified thing, because servant of King Jesus means you're loved sacrificially. Um, but it's like, God, I can't even call you father. I can't even call myself your son or your daughter or your child, because I don't even deserve it. So how do you think the son felt to be treated this way that he was treated? What would you feel? Surprised? Surprised? <clears throat> Relief. be like, well, I don't deserve this. Like, I feel guilty that you're doing all this stuff for me. So there could be. So we could say that. We can talk about getting rid of that feeling. Guilty. But that might be connected with this undeserving. Yeah. Surprise, relief, rejoicing, or joy. Worthy, undeserving. We might feel guilt, but which, which we don't need to feel because God gives it to us freely. But we can feel it. But you can imagine the son saying in line with that, No, I don't deserve this. It's too much. It's not fair. I, you shouldn't do this to me. This isn't justice. This isn't fair. I should ha- be punished for what I've done. I lost it all, Dad. But that's not what grace is. It's getting the opposite of what we deserve. The son wanted to make it up for what he had done. He wanted to pay for it himself. God, don't even, or not God, Dad, don't even call me a son. That's not what I deserve. I deserve to be just called a hired servant. He wants to make up for him. He wants to pay for it himself. But instead, he gets something better. He gets forgiveness. And forgiveness from not being, saying to his son, well, you're forgiven for the wrong you've done, and then treating him as a hired servant. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness means our wrongs aren't held against us. They don't come between us, and they won't come up again. If you like writing things down, I don't know if that would be helpful to you. But if it is, forgiveness means our wrongs aren't held against us. They don't come up between us, and they won't come up again. Forgiveness means our wrongs aren't held against us. They don't come between us, and won't come up again. There's no condemnation, no separation, no record that there ever was anything to be condemned for. We're treated as if it never happened. And that's what restores the relationship. It gets restored. It doesn't mean, okay, we're going to be in a relationship now, and I'm going to kind of let that go, but I'm going to bring it up other times, or I'm going to still treat you a little differently because of it. No, this relationship restored means you're treated as if it never happened. And this whole story is designed to show us the grace of God. And the grace of God, like we said, is shocking and surprising and overwhelming and it, in its generosity. It seems that God overdoes it. You're just too generous. It's just too much, God. And it's not just that we don't 
receive the punishment we deserve. It's like God pours blessings on us that are the exact opposite of what we deserve because he's not just like, okay, um, we can, you can come back and things go back to normal. He's like, let's throw a party. I'm going to kill the, the best calf I have. We're going to throw a party. It's, the sun has already cost him so much. And now he's like, you know, I don't care if you cost me more. I'm going to throw this party from my own pocket for you. And the father doesn't just say, okay, I won't punish you. He runs out to him and showers him with love and affection, embraces him, and throws the best party you can for him. And if I was thinking of this, I don't even know if I can fully say I believe it because it's so hard. But if you don't think Christianity sounds good, too good to be true, then you don't yet understand it. If it doesn't sound too good to be true, then you don't yet understand it, or at least not fully. And I was thinking to myself this week, man, do, do I think God's forgiveness sounds too good to be true? Sometimes I do, and sometimes it's not, just not hitting me very much. And so if it, and for this son, it's like, wouldn't this be, this is what I deserve. And he not only doesn't get this, uh, but he gets all the things that his dad gives him. You have forgiveness, and I'm not even going to, I don't even care about you saying how you're going to make it up to me. I'm just going to treat you as if it never even happened. And if we don't think it sounds too good to be true, then we don't yet understand it. But... If we continued on in the story, if we read the rest of it, we would see that the older brother, who remained home the whole time, um, he's kind of sitting out, I don't know, on a hill or something, watching the party, and he, he, well, he comes in, and he's like, what's up with this party? Uh, and one of the servants is like, oh, your, your younger brother has returned home, and your dad you know, killed the fattened calf, which is like, this is like the best calf we have, you know, sort of like, I don't know, some sort of old aged wine, you're like, take it out for a special occasion. It's like, this is like the best I have, and I'm going to use it up on him. It's like one year, it's 100 years, whatever. I don't know how wine works, but you know what I mean. It's like the best thing he's got. Like, what's the best thing I can use up right now to celebrate my son returning home? And then his brother is like, well, uh, he's kind of sitting out there stinking and grumping about it. And his dad comes out, come into the party. And he's like, no, I've served you all these years. I've been fully obedient. I never left home, never squandered the stuff. And now you spend it all on this son of yours. I want to call him his brother. You spend it all on this son of yours. He's like, yeah, but your brother was dead, and now he's alive. We need to celebrate this son. You need to come back and come celebrate with them. And he never does, or at least we're not told whether he does or not. And to Jesus, he's talking to religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, who were so religiously close to God, uh, were doing everything they're supposed to do, and yet their hearts were far from him. And so it was like this invitation to them, like, you guys, they're getting mad at Jesus for hanging out with all these sinners all these people that are there, like, why are you hanging out with all those people far from God? And Jesus is like, God is so happy when those people return. That's why I'm with them. And he cares about you too. And will you celebrate as they return? And they're like, no. No, we need to, we've been serving God our whole lives and we're stinky about it. And we, we're mad that we would, you would be hanging out with them. And so we ask this question of ourselves. Um, how are you living toward God? Are you living like this? You sin, mess up, this is what you're expecting from God. Crossed arms, or I told you so, or rejection, or guilt, condemnation. You're feeling like he's cold towards you, judging you, just waiting to punish you. Is that how you're feeling towards God? Or are you feeling like the sun, like the things we wrote down? Like every day, um, we should feel this surprise, this relief. This joy, this unworthy feeling, this undeserving feeling. Like, God, I don't deserve any of this. 
I'm totally undeserving, and yet I have it. And it's just like this overwhelming feeling. Is that how you feel? Or maybe you're like the older brother. You know, grace is unfair, and we should all have to earn our way to God. Like he's saying, I'm paying my dues, Dad. Why aren't I getting that kind of treatment? And maybe we feel that way. I'm paying my dues, God. Why aren't I getting treated this way? Or like, this, that person's getting this, or this person you forgave? Um, I'm paying my dues. You know, do you feel like you're paying your dues towards God, and that you've earned your way back to him, or you've earned something from him? And I want to, uh, Larry's not here, but he gave me this idea one time. I'm going to pass out these little note cards. Just take one. You're going to write, I'm going to ask you to write sins on them, so you might have to take multiple if you feel like you have a lot. Okay, Caleb, here we go. Requested it. Why don't you use this whiteboard? No. (laughs) You have a pen, grab a, if you don't have a pen, grab a pen. Oh, we're out of pens. I have a pencil in my pocket. You can worry multiple if you need a second for an addendum. saying, oh, you guys are good. Uh, I'm saying this assuming uh, most, if not all of you, are Christians, and so what we're about to do is, is for Christians. Write down every sin for which God is going to hold you accountable when you meet him. How many should you write down? All sins. Zero. 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 Man, How many sins does the father hold that son accountable for? Does he condemn him? Does he judge him? Does he reject him? Does he say, I told you so? Does he punish him? Does he hold him guilty? No. So he holds him accountable for zero. And so your our sheets should all be Blank. When we meet God, there's so many sins he's going to hold us accountable for. Zero, because Jesus paid for it. God forgives us by taking our place. Jesus already paid for all of them. And, of course, there's one aspect of God relating to us as a judge, and so he declares us righteous and innocent and not guilty from the outset. And then as we relate to him as a father, of course, in a relationship, it's not just like you know, Katie and I enter a marriage and it's like, hey, I just forgive you for everything you've done and you never have to talk to me about it. I'm never going to say I forgive you. That's not how a, re- a dynamic relationship works. And so in our dynamic relationship with the father, um, when he, we're relating to him as a father and not as a judge, of course we're, in a, we're encouraged to come to him and confess our sins. And, and we're told he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so there's a not just a like, when I trusted in Jesus... I ask God to forgive me, and now I never have to do it again. But we have uh, that dynamic relationship where we do come to him, but he, we're never held guilty or condemned for our sins. And we, when we trust in Jesus, 
And when we ask him, hey, God, I, I messed up today. I messed up this week. Um, and he says, I forgive you. That's never coming up again. As far as the east is from the west, God, that's how far God removes our sins from us. And so this piece of paper, uh, it being blank, should feel too good to be true. God's not going to, this is what he's going to hold me accountable for. I've done so much, God, even this week. Isn't that too good to be true? That this is what he's going to hold us accountable for. And if you held multi- took multiple, so you're like, man, I'm a real sinner. Save all of them. I encourage you this week, put this somewhere in your house, on a mirror, wherever you're going to see it, and put it up, and it's blank, and you'll know what it means. And you can say, doesn't hold me accountable for anything. Anything I did yesterday, anything I did the last decade, anything I'll do the next decade, zero. When you meet him, he's not going to bring it up. So put this in your house somewhere, because the reason it can happen, the reason we can be treated as if it never happened, it's because God took our place. He paid for all of them. And all of what we said tonight and through this whole series is based on the Bible. And so the question is, well, does the Bible reliably tell us about Jesus? We talked about him being a legend. Um, is he a legend? I mean, did I just get all worked up and we do this weird exercise uh, for nothing? Like, this is pointless if Jesus wasn't actually real and he's just this legend that kind of became built up over time. And so next week we're talking about, uh, is the Bible reliable? Does it give us an accurate picture of Jesus? Is there a reason that we can trust what it says uh, about him um, and about Christianity? Let's pray. Father, it's too good to be true that we can stand before you And you say we're declared innocent and righteous. And even though we're guilty, should be condemned that before Jesus we are your enemies. Now you call us friends. Now you call us children. Now you call us sons and daughters. Now you call us your people. When once we were not your people. And it's too good to be true that we are held accountable for none of our sins when we've trusted in Jesus because he paid for them all. Would you please help us to live in light of this good news? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.